No? It's all right. It's all right. So the annual congregational meeting is Sunday, January 30th, after the morning worship. And we will have a meal. I don't remember what it was. It's food. Oh, okay. Tacos. So you can bring your hot sauce if you want. Uh, when I was growing up, <clears throat> I'm going to pull Leonard. When I was growing up, Taco Bell hot sauce was hot. <laughs> nah, not anymore. <laughs> no, I got I get used to it. I I I, I eat the fire and it's not hot. <clears throat> Yeah, I had Gringo Mouth, yeah. So uh, that's all the uh, pressing announcements right now. We have the call to worship. Give unto the Lord, O ye kindreds of the people. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. O worship the Lord in beauty of holiness. Fear before him all the earth. Let's bow hearts and heads in silent preparation for worship. stand and sing hymn 178. Oh, uh-huh. 
grace and mercy, God, through Christ Jesus. We pray, Lord, for continued long-suffering towards us, your covenantal faith in this, Lord, we implore this morning as we gather together as your people, Lord. We pray, God, that we would continue to focus on you, that this day would be a blessing. As you promised in your word, we gather together, Lord, in your name. There you are in the midst of us. We pray these things as you taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. seated. We have a responsive reading of Psalm 30 inside the bulletin. I'll read the bold face. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, you brought my soul up from the grave. You have kept me alive, that I should not go down to the pits. For his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Lord, by your favor you have made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face and I was troubled. What profit is there in my blood when I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it declare your truth? You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have put off my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. And so we read the psalmist here, David, speaking of a number of things, certainly praising God for delivering him from his enemies, <clears throat> keeping him alive, praising him, but also acknowledging in verse 5, for his anger is but for a moment and his favor is for life. Weeping may endure for a night. The weeping of the punishment of God, that is the discipline of the Father upon his children, as we'll read about this morning in suffering that Peter speaks of. But joy comes in the morning. It is but for a moment, even though it seems like forever for us, but Christ shall come and will be in eternity, and this will fade away. Let us pray. We do, Lord, call upon you and extol your name. We magnify you, God, above all things and all others in this world, thanking you, God, for lifting us up, that our foes, the foes of the church, the foes of Jesus Christ, 
will never ultimately rejoice over us. The world, the flesh, and the devil have been conquered by you and are being conquered and will finally be conquered when Christ returns. We are thankful for that, God. We cry out and rejoice before you, Lord. With confidence in our hearts, God, even though we feel it may fade away with the circumstances of our life at times, Lord, yet the fire of trust and belief will always be there as we have your spirit. We pray in particular, God, that you would be with us individually and collectively as your people that we would confess our sins, God, before you, not only on this your day, Lord, but throughout the week as we are confronted with our sins, God, as we are confronted with the temptations of the world, Lord, to acknowledge our sins, to ask for forgiveness, God, and to believe what is promised in your word to us, that you will cover our sins. We ask, God, that you would help us in our sanctification and growth to continue to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that we would read your word, that we would pray, that we would... Use the public formal means of grace, God, of the worship of you before the world without fear to participate in prayer and praise and in preaching. And Lord God and Savior, we ask that throughout the week as well that we would stop and pray before you, Lord, even a quick prayer as needed. We would read your word and meditate upon it and learn how to apply it to not only ourselves, God, but to one another to read your word as family, Lord, and not just by ourselves. And God, we ask for continued fellowship as we are able throughout the week. We pray, God, not only for ourselves, but for our family, for the husbands and wives, for the fathers and the mothers, Lord, to continue to love each other, to continue to lead their family and their children, to continue to pray for their adult children, God, and influence as they can unto godliness, that we would help one another, Lord, and exhort one another why the day is at hand, God, to do the right thing, to do our duties before you and to one another. In love, a fervent love, as we read in First Peter, God, for one another and for the brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. So we pray not only for our families, God, to protect and watch over them, but for our church here and for our sister churches across the Dakotas, God, that we would have a fervent love and desire for one another to grow, both numerically and spiritually, to help one another, God, to carry burdens for one another. To that end, God, we pray, Lord, for the ailments and sicknesses. We have friends, family members who have COVID. We have others, Lord, with other ailments and sicknesses, God, that they are struggling with. We pray, God, uh, for Thurston and Strong's grandson, God, that you would be with him and their parents, their first child, Lord, child that seems to be dying and the doctors aren't sure exactly what's going on. Be with them, we pray, God. Help the doctors understand the situation. Above all, Lord, may they not lose faith, but rather have their faith strengthened. Contrary to how the world would see these things, to know, Lord, that you are in control and that they trust you with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Help us, we pray, Lord. Continue to pray for one another and take care of our needs bodily as best we can to protect ourselves, to protect one another within reason. Our Lord and Savior, we ask not only for our church and for our sister churches, uh, but for our denomination, for other denominations of like faith and practice, Lord, other Reformed churches of different traditions, Lord, and, and the broad stream of the Reformation. We ask that you would be with them as well, that they, Lord, would take seriously the call of Reformation in their churches, both in practice and in doctrine, that, Lord, they would stand firm against the spirit of this age, against what we prayed for in, in uh, prayer time this morning, God, of the various lies and approaches to history and the church and the differences, Lord, we have in our nation and hating anybody who doesn't follow their path. Our God and Savior, we pray that the uh, Presbyterian Church in America, in particular God, would stand firm and uh, pass the resolutions that need to be passed, Lord, and above all, have resolution in their hearts amongst the leadership in particular God that make a stand against the degradation of the ministry. We pray, God, for our denomination, Orthodox Presbyterian Church, not because we are better than others, Lord, but because this is closest to us. It is the denomination that we have covenanted with, Lord, and guided and been with since the beginning. We pray, Lord, that she would stand firm, that her ministries, Lord, and pastors, God, would also resist the spirit of the age, and that, Lord, our committees at the national level, Lord, and our committees at the Presbyterian level, and all those of influence, God, would do the right thing, Continue to preach the truth and the fullness therein, Lord, and not water it down. 
We pray for this nation, God. We pray for her repentance, Lord. We pray for the churches to stand firm and all churches, Lord, whether they're reformed or not, to be purified by your word and to grow in the knowledge of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and that they, Lord, would take a stand again against the pressures of society and preach clearly the truth and the call of repentance, Lord, to the powers that be. Be with your church in America, God. Purge her, purify her, and strengthen her, Lord, in this day and age we find ourselves. Be with us this morning in particular, God. Open our ears to the preaching of the word, and thus open our hearts that would come in, Lord, and strengthen and convict us and encourage us, uh, direct us, and whatever else we may need in our hearts, Lord, to follow you. In your name alone we pray. Amen. We now have the tithes and offerings. Praise you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, God, and the possessions that we have, Lord, and particularly these tithes and offerings given to you, Lord. We ask, God, and plead that they would continue to be used wisely and to be multiplied, Lord, in your providence for the good of the church and for the good of, Lord, your kingdom above all. In the name of Lord, we pray. Amen. Let us continue to sing Psalm 79b, 79b. reading of the Ten Commandments, which is inside uh, the hymnal and a green sheet. Let us say the Ten Commandments together. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath 
or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Hear also the words of our Lord Jesus, how he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Let us turn to our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. First Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 15. Let us listen attentively to the word of God. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this manner. Let us pray. With these words, God, penned by Peter, but moved by the spirit of might and truth, We pray that we would be encouraged and guided, Lord, in a better understanding of trials and tribulations in the Christian's life. In your name alone we pray. Amen. As comfortable Americans, it is easy to forget that trials and tribulations have been part of the Christian church for 2,000 years. And before then, of course, into the Old Testament. This is both a bad thing and a good thing. As a good thing, as a gift from God, that is, his blessings have shielded us from severe troubles for so long. Being a Christian is not a thing to be persecuted for a while in America. For confessing Christ before men, we do not lose our jobs. As such, it is a time, nevertheless, to husband our resources and expand the kingdom as best we can since there's no serious obstacles. That's what we should have been doing. And we had, you know, collectively in America, as part of our founding, of course, is for the religious freedom of the Protestants. However, it's also a bad thing to have such peace and prosperity to the extent that we let it make us soft and do not use the opportunities for greater good. To the extent that we do not take advantage of the freedom of ease to further our spiritual growth. And too much prosperity often means we're unprepared for difficulties when it comes around. And that's where we find ourselves in America. It's not a uniquely American phenomenon per se, other than, of course, the prosperity is historically what we have. Uh, But the it's a human condition, uh, temptation, that during times of peace and prosperity where things are going so well, 
that when trials and tribulations come upon us, you lose your job, you have problems in your family, you have problems in society, as we find ourselves in these days. It's easy to grumble, complain, and wondering what in the world's going on. Why is this happening to me? Something similar apparently has appeared to happen to Peter's audience. We see that as we go through the text here, verses 12 and following, Beloved, and so he uses a term of endearment to his brothers and sisters in the Lord uh, to remind them of his love for them as an apostle, as a presbyter, as a bishop of the people of God, and the unity that he has with them through Christ Jesus, that although they may be Gentiles and he is a Jew, as we know, that difference doesn't matter anymore in the New Testament era. And so he calls them beloved. But he continues here to explain something to them that they needed to hear, and perhaps we need to hear it today as well. Do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, which is coming upon you. As though something strange had happened to you. What in the world's going on, they're thinking. Trials, another way of looking at it, is, are not uncommon. Apparently, they thought being a Christian would be a cushy job. At least some of them did. The fiery trials and pagan thought, on the other hand, would often be evidence of a displeasing and capricious fake gods that they worshipped. Of their own sins and violations, perhaps, of something unknown violation because their gods, being capricious, changing the rules and the requirements, didn't always tell them. And so being what I believe to be a predominantly Gentile audience, Gentile again meaning pagan, brothers and sisters, the raw paganism that covered so much of the earth for so long took hold, a stranglehold upon this world, and that's in the midst of which they came out of. They had idols and altars in their home, in their temples. They worshipped these false gods. This is the bondage which they found themselves in. So from that perspective, it makes sense that they, they see a difficulty in life and they wonder, is God unhappy with me? What have I done? And he tells them, no, no, that's, that's not going to, that's not, that's not what's happening here. The fiery trials and pagan thought as evidence of something wrong, of something strange going on. That perhaps they thought they're going back to their old pagan ways with the God of the Bible, uh, is my understanding. And he's telling them, no, this is not a strange thing. This is not what you think is going on with these fiery trials. The word fiery there probably refers to the nature, not to the intensity of the trial. They're not going to be catching on fire, uh, although some Christians did during the persecutions um, decades later. But rather, I think, uh, to the quality of what it is. We read in verse 7 of chapter 1, So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found a result to the praise of his glory. It's the imagery of purification, right? Of burning the dross off the gold or the silver. That kind of fiery trial. And it's not a strange thing. It shouldn't catch them off guard. They shouldn't be, what's going on here? I'm a follower of Christ. Have I done something? Or has my God changed? Or whatever. Uh, specifically, they're thinking he's telling them, no, 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 no. Uh, but rather, of course, this is supposed to happen to you. It's part of God's plan. This is a trial that God gives us to purge us, as he reminds them in verse 7. The imagery of the Old Testament, right? God purifies his people with trials and tribulations, to make him more Christ-like, to make him more God-like. Peter has to tell them that Christianity is not tribulation-free, as he's telling us today in America, it shall not be tribulation-free. Churches should not preach that trials are a strange thing in the Christian life. And yet they do in a twofold manner, unfortunately. One, through omission. They simply don't warn people, this is what's going to happen, you follow Jesus, your neighbor's going to think you're weird. Your boss doesn't understand why you want the Lord's Day off? What's up with that? You a lazy worker? The other way, of course, is they just outright say, you follow Jesus and he'll have a wonderful plan for you and you have wonderful things going on in your life. That happens, unfortunately, and it should not happen. When the gospel call goes out from churches, part of it should be what Christ tells his disciples. What? Carry my yoke. If they hate me, they're going to hate you that they have to count the cost of what it means to follow Jesus. And part of that cost, as we know, are fiery trials and tribulations, difficulties, hardships, troubles. This is clearly against the American prosperity approach to things. The American mindset is, how can there be 
ups and downs in the economy. It should always be an up. Always, always, always. <laughs> I'm not making light of what's going on now. I think it's a problem, but it is an American way of thinking, isn't it? Something must be wrong. This is not the way the world's supposed to be. And there's some truth in that, because we're in a fallen world. But since many Americans, unfortunately, are not saved, they don't make that connection, do they? That This is further evidence that you're in a fallen world, because you know in your heart this is not right. Something's not right here. Yes, we're not, on, we're not in heaven anymore. We're in a fallen world. We have it made in America, to be sure, compared to the rest of history. Ours is a peaceful time even to this day, compared to the rest of the world outside of the West. It is very peaceful. And all the things going on in Africa, China, even India, still... It is a difficulty for us, and that's what counts. It is still a real surprise, not because of ignorance, but because of suddenness or intensity, often in our lives as Christians in America, when difficulties come upon us, both externally outside of our home, outside of our church, and internally within our homes, within our church, within ourselves at times, when difficulty comes upon us, or surprisals of temptations as well. The intensity of it increases suddenly, perhaps, There are still trials, they are still real, there are still real difficulties in America, and we should not belittle it. And pointing out the peace and prosperity we've had compared to the rest of the world is not to say what we have now we should be satisfied with, in the sense of not being, just giving up and not pushing back. Of course, sometimes you're able to push back, and the trials and tribulations go away. And other times, as he seems to be indicating here, there are trials and tribulations you can do nothing about. You must simply sit there and persevere. And those are the hardest, to be sure. And so he is trying to prepare them as we ought to prepare ourselves. As we ought to rethink, perhaps, if we need to, what it means to be a Christian, what it means to have tribulations in our lives. Now he continues on to give counterintuitive advice. Right? That which is against what seems to be obvious. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trials, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice. What? (laughs) Rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. Rejoice. Obviously, he's not saying rejoice in the suffering as such. That being miserable and having difficult times in life is a, is a good thing in itself, and we should all seek out miserably uh, terrible lives. That's a variation of the monkery of the Roman Catholic Church. To be more holy is to beat your body more. It may be required, of course, if you struggle with certain physical things. Rejoicing is not the reproaches or the mockings, the hateful co-workers and difficult politicians and laws or whatever else. Uh, the co-workers and like are hinted at in chapter 3 and 4, and the reproach, that language, uh, the description there of the persecution they went through, apparently, where they were disparaged by their neighbors. Why aren't you out there partying with the rest of us? You think you're better than us? You know, who made you God or who made you judge and prophet over us? That kind of mentality and attitude of the world towards you. That's the kind of trials that seem to be there that Peter speaks of, but it's any of those things. He's not saying rejoice in that. Yes, Lord, bring more reproach upon my head. I want more reproach. But rather, he says, to the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering. The object is different, isn't it? Suffering is a means and occasions to grow and to be sanctified, to become more like Jesus. Bad things in life, God uses for good. Does that mean you should rejoice and seek out more bad things? Of course not. (laughs) Of course not, a thousand times no. He's never, the Bible never says rejoice in badness per se, but rather that God uses the badness in your life to the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering, which is a good thing. To that extent, you rejoice. To that extent, you are thankful. To that extent, you glorify God and say, thank you, God. This is what I needed. And of course, in the language here of partaking of Christ's suffering, he means to the extent that it's a righteous suffering, not that (laughs) you stole money and you're suffering now. I mean, he says that elsewhere, right? And Peter, we went over that. He's, look, you're going to suffer for doing good. 
What is it to suffer for doing bad? Even the pagans accept that kind of punishment. You ought to accept the punishment too and do something bad as a Christian. But I am talking about, Peter says, when you do the right thing and you still suffer. That's the idea of suffering for righteousness. And suffering and partaking of Christ's suffering as such. Note the suffering, um, as I said here, not that suffering per se, but the context of obedience to God, that you do good and someone mocks you, that you follow God and someone derides you, that you obey the Lord and someone punishes you. That's what he's talking about. And you do it in the name of Jesus Christ. And so the language rejoice is shorthand for being thankful for God, for the grace to obey and to persevere, for the grace shed abroad upon you, that you are persevering, and that's evidence of God's grace upon you, a badge of following the Lord, as it were, when you suffer for Christ's sake. You suffer for being Christian, for doing the right thing in the name of our Lord and Savior. He continues on, verse 3, the middle part. <clears throat> but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. When his glory is revealed, is that when his glory is revealed, is the second coming of our Savior, and our suffering, your suffering, will be publicly vindicated. That you were innocent, you were in the right, they were in the wrong. The fullness of his redemption will be for us, and there will be justice for all. I pointed that out two or three times already in Peter, where he writes about justice, that you leave it to the Lord, and God, Jesus Christ, will take care of it. And that even the unbelievers will rejoice and glorify God in the day of his coming, we read in chapter 2. Because you have done the right thing, and they acknowledge their own sin. And when he comes back, we'll have a greater joy, brothers and sisters, because we will see the truth of all that happened to us. Because we only see now what? Through a glass darkly. We don't fully grasp all the context of God's providence, of the suffering, of how it all works out always. We may not fully see the results of that suffering in our life for our own good sometimes until heaven. And so we must trust in him and believe that this is for our good and for his glory. And when his glory is revealed, when the fullness of who he is is revealed to the whole world, brothers and sisters, you may also be glad with exceeding joy and know it was worth it. You know it now, although emotionally it's very hard. But then emotionally you will know it as, my, as well as intellectually and in, and in your heart. It's a blessing of reproach. Verse 14. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of the glory and of God rests upon you. Reproach there means to be reviled, insulted, scolded. In a word, hated. What we see in Hollywood films, as I point out, and angry atheists online and the books they write and language from public leaders, they belittle Christians, they belittle our God, they belittle our Christ. <laughs> and what do you call it, brothers and sisters, when they give you a movie rating on TV for language they bleep out the language, except they don't bleep out the name of our God. What? It's okay to curse in God's name, but all those other words. Can't have that. Because they care not for us. They care not for our sensitivity. I'm offended by that. Where's my safe space on TV? They don't care. They use the name of our Lord, they're reviling our Lord, and therefore they're reviling us who follow our Lord. Friends, neighbors, they also look down often upon us, behind our backs. That's part of trials and tribulation. That's part of reviling and scolding and mocking us. They are suspicious of you, and then eventually they think evil of you. That's the devolution of those who will not follow the Lord. It happened to Christians in the early church. They accused them of incest and cannibalism, as you recall. They passed it around as though it were the truth. Nobody investigated it. Why bother investigating it? Sound familiar today? 
Rumors passed around as facts because they deride us. They lie about us. It's a reproach for the name of Christ. You're a Christian? Ha! Whatever. We know about you guys. A bunch of bigoted fools. You're unpatriotic. You're unfit to be citizens. Am I talking about the early church or today? Yeah. You hear it in both places. You can read it in the early church. They said the same thing. And you hear about it today. It's for Christ's sake. It's for Christ's sake, for claiming to be a Christian, for doing good in the name of Jesus and our Lord and Savior in the gospel. It's not just in Christ's name per se. That is, did you use the word Christ today when you had a conversation? That's not the idea here. It's reproach for the name of Christ, for the authority of our Lord and Savior. And not just Jesus, obviously God the Father and God the Son. And not just him and his person, but all that he has given for us, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ and his word. You should not use the name of our Lord God in vain, right? The commandment tells us. We know it doesn't just mean the name. It means the person, the work, the attributes, everything that God puts a stamp upon and has given us, his church, the Bible. You shouldn't use any of those in vain. And on the flip side, it should be upheld and taken seriously and honored properly within the proportion, of course, of God being above all. And so to take the reproach for the name of Christ is to take the reproach of taking that commandment seriously. Think about it. In which we go to church, we take the Lord's Day seriously, we talk about the gospel, we ask people not to curse, and they say, why? What's your problem? Why are you doing this? I'm a believer. I follow the Bible. I believe in Jesus. Whatever language you use, that's the idea of reproach for the name of Christ, all that's entailed in the authority and position of our Lord and Savior and the things he's given us. Which is to say, he's saying, if you're reproached for the name of Christ, that is, you're not reproached for just doing any good that an unbeliever can do. Unbelievers can do good. They can feed their neighbor, and they do. They can preserve and protect life, and they do. But they don't do it. Because they're Christians, they just do it because it's the right thing to do in their conscience and they want to take care of their fellow man, but they don't care about God. And so unbelievers can do good things as Christians, but we do it in the name of our Lord. We do it as Christians. We're not ashamed of it. It's publicly known, at least to the extent that it can be. As Christians, and people are watching us, and they reproach us. Oh, you preserve life? But you preserve life as a Christian, and we know Christians hate life because you don't follow the gods, the old gods, as the Romans said. And so you don't follow the old gods, you follow no god, therefore you're an atheist. They accused Christians in the early church of being atheists. Do you know that? And thus not good patriots. Because the world is watching us, and although we may do the, right, the same thing they do, they don't care because you do it in the name of the Lord. In fact, they may hate you all the more for it. Nevertheless, it is a blessing, brothers and sisters. Blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. You have his spirit. This is why you're standing up and doing the right thing. You have the Holy Spirit. He will preserve you as you persevere. And you are therefore not alone. You are blessed even in the midst of reproach, even in the midst of fiery trials and tribulations, you are blessed. The world can't see it. They think, the old pagan ways of thinking, what have I done wrong? What have I said wrong against my God? They didn't know at times. Or their God, as I said, changed the rules. Here we do know. We do know the trials are not strange. They should not surprise us as Christians, but we should know in the midst of them that as we are doing good, it is a blessing indeed, an evidence of the Spirit of God upon us, and that we will persevere. Glorifying Christ through suffering is what's happening here. The same event as multiple elements are in that event. You doing the right thing, and then being punished for it. 
as two different agents, moral agents, two different purposes behind it, and yet it's one event. On their part, in the midst of the reproaching of you and of Jesus Christ, calling them in the early church cannibals and atheists, on their part, he is blasphemed. But on your part, he is glorified. You're innocent. You haven't done anything wrong. You're not a cannibal. You're not unpatriotic. And so it's the same event with two different moral intents behind it. On their part, he is blasphemed. The enemies of God curse him by cursing you, in other words. On your part, he is glorified. You are innocent, and God knows it, and therefore he is glorified. The good of God's work is in us and seen through our good works, and we suffer for it accordingly. In that sense, uh, it is like a badge. That is a public way of distinguishing us from the world. And to that extent, it's also a way to glorify God. Because again, brothers and sisters, as you recall in chapter 2, the unbeliever who does not repent, nevertheless, when Christ returns, will acknowledge publicly that he was wrong and God was right and glorify his name. And, of course, it is uh, always for Christ's sake. And he continues on here. We're still in point two. Verse 15, but let none of you suffer as murderers. I can move it up, Bruce. I can move it up, Bruce. Is that better? I don't think you can hear me. Yeah, I, it sounds... Okay. We'll, we'll, um, we'll have to set it up and put a little marker on it, Trip, so we know what volume works the best. Because we can't go by the lowest always. Um, so, now verse 15, to make it clear what I said before, right? Let, let none of you suffer... As a murderer, you're going you're gonna to suffer, but don't suffer for doing the wrong thing. <laughs> as a thief, as an uvidor, or as a busybody in other people's matters. That kind of suffering doesn't count. <laughs> he said it before. Even the unbelievers, even the Gentiles, will willingly accept punishment for doing the wrong thing. And they do. I've met them, very honorable men and women. The temptation, of course, is, is given in these matters to give because of the peer pressure, the jeering and the mocking, deriding, to give into these sins, these old sins perhaps, although he adds a little different list than what he had there in chapter four, or early part of chapter 4. The pressure is to be no longer to be a goody-two-shoe, to stand out differently in whatever claim they make against you. So he says, no, don't give into that. Don't suffer as a murderer, a thief, or an evildoer. And there's something of note here is, of course, the list of serious sins. Murder, thievery, and evildoer. Evildoer is a very general term there. Uh, but that's certainly public. I mean, how can you suffer for being a thief unless you were caught as a thief and is known by other people? That's the point. Murder is pretty obvious. It's going to be pretty public. Evildoer, therefore, I would argue, is also public. And so is a busybody in other people's matters. If it's other people's matters and you're caught as a busybody and you're suffering for it, that's not private anymore, is it? You got caught. It's a suffer, it's a public thing. So there will be sins in the Christian life, but what he's highlighting here is make doubly sure that you fight against those sins and you avoid those sins because the world is watching you. That's where the suffering comes in. You're not going to suffer for things that you do at home, generally speaking. They don't know about it or done privately. But these are public things on the job, as a citizen, as we read in chapter 2 and 3, and the like. In other words, keep your nose clean. I mean, being a busybody isn't as serious as murder. And yet he still says, don't be a busybody. Keep your nose clean, we would say. Unlike... A video interview I saw a week ago in which a Christian organization, they said, we're a Christian organization, we are a Christian ministry. That's a you know, famous way of speaking in evangelical circles for like 50 or 60 years now. Interviewing a billionaire named Elon Musk. Anybody heard of him? Tesla? 
and they write for a Christian satire site. And at the end of the interview, out of nowhere, they're like, hey, Elon, would you like to do a solid for us? Do a solid for us. I don't even think they talk that way in those in the youth circles anymore. I've not heard that in a while. Right, guys? So do a solid for me. I mean, they're trying to be hip, and they're still 10 years behind. Would you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And Elon Musk continues and says, what? You want me? What? You want me to take the Bible seriously? What? And he starts chiding them about not taking the Lord's Day seriously. He says, "Why are we here in an interview on the Lord's Day when it says you should not work on the Lord's Day?" That's what Elon Musk asked them. Remember that? You're just like, "Well, he's got more wisdom than these Christian writers," and they had nothing to say about it. He reproached them nicely in one way, in one sense. He wasn't just laughing at them. He reproached them. But their reproach was not suffering for Christ's sake. They were suffering for violating a very simple, easy thing to do. I grew up not taking the Lord's Day seriously in the sense of it wasn't taught to me doctrinally. I wasn't taught there is a Sunday and it's the Lord's Day and you should do and make a reasonable effort to avoid working that day and come to worship. We just did it. It was our practice, although it wasn't our doctrine. Isn't that, isn't that weird? But that's a good thing. That's where a good example of good practice, even with bad doctrine, is better in that case. I grew up that way. I, it's not hard to do. People don't want to do it. They didn't want to do it, and Elon Musk caught, caught them. It turns out, I, I think he was raised in South Africa and probably had some schooling, Christian schooling in Sunday school, and was well-educated about the Lord's Day. <laughs> that's not what suffering is talking about. That's the opposite. Let none of you suffer as an evildoer. Very broad. Very broad word. Matthew 5.16, on the other hand, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's the opposite, isn't it? Which is to say, brothers and sisters, it is not impossible. One of the games being played in the churches today, in conservative churches and even reformed churches, unfortunately, is this, well, we all sin kind of a game. And yet Peter says, stop it. He says, don't murder, don't suffer as a thief or an evildoer, again, a very broad term, or a busybody. You're going to say, Pastor, it's okay because, you know, you're just a, you're a sinner too, and if you happen to murder somebody, eh, if you happen to have an attraction towards murdering people, eh, it's okay, we all have these struggles, but you can still be a pastor. You'd be like, what? And yet we make excuses for certain sins that society really likes. In these cases, no, no, a thousand times no. It's not impossible. By God's grace, you can overcome and make a public witness. And I believe we have here. I'm not aware of any outstanding scandals in our church. Does that mean you're perfect? Well, no, but that's not the point. There's no outstanding scandals. God has been working in you, brothers and sisters. You can, and you can persevere. That the world will not mock you for doing evil, but rather mock you for doing good. And the last point, trials are not a shame. <clears throat> and trials are not a shame. They are a signal of a blessing. They are not uncommon, and they are not a shame. Verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this manner. Be not ashamed, of course, again, echoing, I think, the pagan way of thinking that trials and persecution indicate something that you've done is wrong, and therefore evidence of displeasure from the pagan God, evidence of sin. And of course, it could be, I'm not denying that, but it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be at all, in fact. And you know the difference. Because when you sin, there are natural consequences to your sin. They catch up with you often. Like murder and thievery, being a busybody, someone catches you while you keep talking about this stuff. Get your nose out and just do your own duty and take care of your, your family and leave me alone. There's natural problems that arise from people who sin, and those are trials and tribulations of your own making, to be sure. And you must repent of it. And that doesn't mean that trials and tribulations go away. You still have to go to court for speeding, pay your ticket, whatever the case is. 
but you repent and you carry on and you avoid the sin in the future as best you can. Many times, trials and difficulties are not tied to your particular sin. Maybe they're tied to other people's sins or misunderstandings or attacks on you for being a follower of Jesus Christ in this particular case. When you take Jesus seriously by honoring the Lord's day and worshiping his name, when you refuse to curse and lie and cheat and steal, be not ashamed when people mock you, but rejoice that God is with you and glorifying you. There is no shame in following our Lord and Savior and doing the right thing. Matthew Henry gives a nice way of speaking about this here in his commentary on Job. It has often been the lot of upright men to be censored and condemned as hypocrites, but it well becomes them to bear up boldly against such censures and not to be discouraged by them, not to be ashamed by them, not to give up because of them. The world will lie, even though you've done the right thing. Do not be ashamed, but rather replace shame with glorifying God. Let him not be ashamed, but rather let him glorify God in this matter, during these difficult times, during these trials and tribulations. For we will receive a reward. Matthew uh, 5, we read, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets who were before you. They too went through trials and tribulations, and we shall as well. God uses his trials and tribulations to show his power and his wisdom, that you are the light of the world in the midst of darkness, that you are a witness of God's truth. These are reasons all the more to glorify God in the midst of your trials and tribulations, to rejoice therein as well. It is indeed evidence of the Spirit of God upon us. Beloved, think it not strange that you will suffer for Christ's name. Rather rejoice, for you are blessed with yet another opportunity to glorify God. Let us pray. We do thank you, Lord, Father above. We praise you, God, and thank you for working all things for your glory, for working through fiery trials in our lives, Lord, a purifying trial that we may grow in sanctification and holiness. May we continue to praise you, Lord. May we not be ashamed of the gospel and of Jesus Christ, for we know it is the power of God and is an opportunity to glorify you all the more. In your name alone we pray. Amen. Let us stand and let us sing. Him 497. His best. This all my prayer shall be. More love, O Christ, to Thee. More love to Thee. More love to Thee. Let sorrow do its work. Send grief and pain. Sweet. Are thy messengers sweet their refrain? When they can sing with me, O love, O Christ, to thee, O love to thee, O love to thee, and shall my latest breath whisper thy praise this 
Be the parting cry my heart shall raise. Thus still its prayer shall be, Lord, love, O Christ, to Thee. Lord, love to Thee. Lord, love to Thee. In the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you all. Amen. Amen.